0: Sang it late, sang it long. Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and welcome back flame. to Oral Valley Catholic. You know, we're the week of the inauguration, and of course, it's been a real bumpy ride coming from the Trump administration and heading into the Biden administration. And the issues that face our country and our families are pretty complicated. You know, there's the abortion issue, which has been with us since about 1972. Then what's happened is uh, gender issues. Um, What role does biology play in deciding whether we're male or female? How about people who have what psychologists have termed gender dysphoria, are we going to get to a place where gender is seen as as essentially an inessential aspect of a human being? Or racism. In the last year, our country's been torn apart by uh, rioting. Uh, it's not just what happened in Washington in the last week, but Portland and other major cities that have just were torn apart by people burning down property because uh, they claimed that uh We treat people as things, and that's what racism is. And our country has a long and sorry history in the area of racism, and racism does still exist. Uh, How much of the uh, government regulation promotes uh, racism is, I think, a matter for good, reasonable debate. But the fact that people can still act in a racist way, I think that uh, all of us have had experiences of that. So what do you do? How do you make all of this right? How do you undo uh, all the children that have been killed in abortion? How do you deal with all the pain of of men and women, teenagers caught up in this very difficult aspect of sexual maturation? What do you say about racism, the economy, all of these things that so excite aspects of our American uh, culture, from the people who will riot on Rider- left to the people that just engage in angry argumentation well today on the second sunday of the gospel um, that the gospel especially saint paul has uh, something very much to offer us going forward but before we get to the gospel i want to talk about how other cultures non-christian cultures have seen this same dilemma about justice and so we're going to take a moment and we're going to talk about one of the great classics in literature, the play, The Oresteia, by Aeschylus. So Why have I decided to talk about The Oresteia? Well, in the last couple of years I've been reading a lot of Greek literature and because What I really love about reading the Greeks is you're reading about a Western culture prior to Christianity. And the Greeks, especially in the 5th century, struggled with so many of the issues that have been perennial problems uh, in human life. And I think that when the Gospel is written, especially Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, Uh, they're really taking on some of the problems that the Greeks have raised about what it means to be a human being. So what's the Oresteia? Well, Aeschylus is a famous Greek playwright, and in, I think it's the 5th century B.C., about the same time as um, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, the 5th and the 4th century, uh, there were always these big contests for the best plays in, in Athens, And there have been so many of them, apparently, that were written, but a handful have come down to us. But they've had a a really important effect in in the development of Western thought, because amongst the Greeks, you can't really separate um, their philosophy and their plays. And so, Aeschylus wrote a trilogy called the Oresteia. And, uh, in the trilogy, it's based in the midst of the myth of the sack of Troy. You know, when we think of, uh, I hope, I think everybody's heard of the sack of Troy. Agamemnon, the Greeks, sail to, to Troy because uh, Paris, the son of the king of Troy, has stolen the wife of Agamemnon's brother, Menelaus. And so the Greeks must, must go and, uh, and bring Helen back. The Iliad, which is the most famous um, part of this story of the Trojan War, is really just about the 10th year of the Trojan War. It's the story of Achilles' anger. It starts out, sing to me, muse, sing of the wrath of Achilles, Peleus' son, whose anger dragged down into Hades countless Achaeans. And so for the next 24 books... It's basically about killing and tragedy, and it ends in everybody just weeping and and counting their losses. Well, as part of that story, there was this story, not in the Iliad, not in the Odyssey, but part of Greek myth, that when Agamemnon and the Greeks wanted to sail, and Agamemnon is this great high king, that the winds wouldn't blow in the right direction. And so Agamemnon Assumed he had been he was being punished and he had to do something dramatically to get the gods to favor him So he has uh, three children Iphigenia Orestes and in uh, her mother's womb Electra so without talking to mom whose name is Clytemnestra Agamemnon goes and gets his beautiful daughter Iphigenia apparently representing to her that she was going to be married to the great Greek hero, Achilles. But instead, he and the army sacrificed her and burned her on an altar. And sure enough, the winds changed and the Greeks sailed for Troy. Then the Iliad, which is about that 10th year, it doesn't even have the Trojan horse in it. Um, that's not part of the Iliad, but it is part of the whole story. So the Greeks sack Troy. Agamemnon gets all of this booty, including as his slave or concubine, Cassandra, who is the daughter of King Priam. Cassandra had been supposedly, supposed to be the lover of the god Apollo, who gave her the gift of sight. And she was supposed to be a priestess of Apollo, but she refused to make love to him. So Apollo spat in her mouth and what that did was her prophecies were all true, but nobody believes her. That's what the name Cassandra means. So the Oristia is written about four centuries after the, after the Iliad. The Iliad is, is conventionally thought to be a product of the eighth century. And it's a brilliant poem. But Gosh, it's almost 3000 years old. But the Oristia is later. And so here's what happens. In the Oresteia, it opens up with a watchman. He's been put there by Agamemnon's wife, uh, Clytemnestra, and it's at the palace of King Agamemnon. And he tells everybody that he's looking out to sea, because there's supposed to be this series of beacons that would be lit from mountaintop to mountaintop. So the kingdom of, Menel, of Agamemnon would know that Troy had fallen. And sure enough, this man-made star lights up the top of a faraway mountain, and they know Agamemnon is arriving. Get foreboding music. Well, he comes home, and there he's, he's greeted by his wife, Clytemnestra, and she's effusive with the praise of how great Agamemnon is. Agamemnon comes in with his armor, dragging his concubine, Cassandra, who is silent. Clytemnestra rolls out, this red tapestry, which is fit for the gods, not human feet. But Agamemnon decides he could go ahead and walk on this tapestry that fits only for the gods and just destroys it. But he goes inside. And when he goes inside, Cassandra starts to go into prophecy. And she says it very clearly. Agamemnon's going to be killed. I'm going to be killed. But the chorus that's out there, all the servants of Agamemnon's house, don't believe her. This, by the way, has been the subject of a recent play by the Rogue Theater that Russ Ronenbaum wrote the music for, and you can get it on YouTube. You just have to ask Russ and buy a ticket, but it's well worth seeing. I saw it last night, and it's what kind of brought all this back to mind. Well, anyway, here's what happens. So Cassandra, the doors to the palace opens, and Cassandra is invited in followed by screams, bloody screams, and when it comes out, Agamemnon's dead body and Cassandra, because turns out Clytemnestra's not in the play, but in the real story, has taken a bad boy boyfriend named Agestheses, a- 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 and together they've gotten Agamemnon into the tub, naked and vulnerable, and slayed him. Then they slayed the beautiful Cassandra, and they threw out both of their bodies, and, uh, People heard it was going to happen, the crowd, the chorus, but they didn't do anything. They heard the screams, and they didn't do anything. Well, why does Clytemnestra do it? It's obvious, isn't it? Is fathers are not supposed to kill their daughters, and so someone had to do something so justice would be done. So then Clytemnestra had to kill Agamemnon. Get it? All right, the second play, and it's about Orestes. See, Orestes was the oldest son. He was a little boy when dad was killed. Years la- He's left, but years later he comes back and he meets with his sister, Electra, in the, out in the plaza in front of the palace. And they're deciding what they have to do about mom. And so to make a long story short, what they decide to do is they got to kill mom because a son and a daughter owe loyalty to their father. So dad killed daughter, Iphigenia, because... He owed loyalty to the army and wanted to see him sail, although he owed loyalty to his daughter, too. Well, Clytemnestra, she kills Agamemnon because she owes loyalty to her daughter. She owes loyalty to her husband, too, and she makes a choice. Well, Orestes and Electra have the same choice, and they uh, they owe allegiance to their sister, their dad, and their mom. And mom's done something awful. She's got blood on her hands. So someone better do something. So what's Orestes do? Matricide kills his mom. The story goes on, and it's about the role that the chorus plays. But in Orestes' play, I mean in Aeschylus' um, play, it's about how this act of violence affects each of the characters, but also the chorus, the community that suddenly is arguing back and forth with each other about how to solve all of these problems how to bring justice to the world because that's what the Oresteia is about what's a just world when you have all these conflicting duties you really have to stand up for the unborn you have to love your country you should support your government you shouldn't be a racist you should want to make the, gov- the country successful and cooperate for the health of others but there's also personal freedoms. Everything about America, if you, if you just think about it, is all of these different conflicting duties um, about individual freedoms and what we owe the community, about the personal rights of the mother against the wife, uh, wife of the child. It's about the sins of a racist person being afflicted on the entire community that maybe mostly isn't racist. But it's how do you balance out all these duties and obtain justice. You see, if you think justice or morality is just about following the rules, then, well, you have all these conflicting rules. How do you decide which one is the most important to follow? Or, if you believe that morality and justice is what brings about the greatest good for the most people, well, how is it that you go through that analysis to exactly know it? Because if you think about the inadequacy of our moral conversation in the United States. People shouting rules or what they're gonna bring great good out of. Just think about some of the big issues of our own lifetime. So was it a good thing to drop atomic weapons on Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Did that bring about a greater good? We incinerated well over 100,000 people to save how many lives of Marines, soldiers, and sailors? Okay, if that's the only part of the equation, does it change it when many of the lives in Nagasaki and Hiroshima were just kids? Can you kill the innocent to save all of these men who themselves did not cause this war? What happens when you use it and the next thing, the Soviet Union has the weapon, China has the weapon, North Korea has the weapon, India has the weapon, Israel has the weapon, uh, Iraq, Iran is trying to get the weapon, uh, who else Who knows what else? What's the greater good mean when the ripple effect of violence just keeps going out into the community? See how it's like the story of the Oristia, which is a much more primitive version of how it is that you choose the right thing to do. So what are the rules? How do you figure out what brings the greatest good? How do Catholics look at moral action? And this is it in a nutshell. It's not that we don't have rules. We do have moral rules. It's not that we don't want to do good. We do want to do good. But the fundamental question that Catholics ask about moral decision-making is, in the choices you make, what kind of person do you reveal yourself to be? And in the choices you make, what kind of persons do your choices make you? What kind of person was Agamemnon? when he chose to slaughter his poor innocent little daughter uh, because of his loyalty to the army. What kind of guy does that? And for Clytemnestra, what kind of woman is it that decides it's okay to kill her husband because her husband killed her daughter? What kind of person does it make Orestes and Electra when one directly enters into the killing of a mother, the other actively encourages it? You know, in the Oresteia, an interesting way of working that out. St. Paul has his own way. And now we're going to turn to the first letter of St. Paul to the Old Corinthians. St. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and why the Oristia came to mind, this Greek play, which was written about three to four hundred years before St. Paul is that if you read the Acts of the Apostles, is St. Paul preached in the Areopagus in Athens, uh, just before he went to Corinth. The Areopagus is the courthouse, the tra- center of trials in Athens. And in the story of the, of the, of the Oristia uh, Athena, the goddess, creates trial by jury. And it is set At the Areopagus, and in the first trial at the Areopagus, where 400 years later, St. Paul would preach, Athena's the chief judge. And so they hear all these conflicting duties about Iphigenia, Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, poor Cassandra, who's an innocent, um, and still caught up in all this evil, uh, Orestes and his sister Electra. And then the crowd itself, which could have done something at any stage and did nothing. Everybody participates in the guilt in some way. What happened? Well, at the end of the day, no matter how you count the votes, the jury hung. And a hung jury in Athens meant acquittal, just like it does now. If you can hang the jury down at the courthouse, you're gonna walk out of that door with your lawyer. You're still gonna have to pay some lawyer fees, which is punishment enough for anyone, according to Ray Sor Sainz, the famous defense lawyer. But the idea that human justice comes up against what is called the curse of the house of Atreus and cannot resolve it and bring good out of it. That's at the heart of the Orstia. And so here's St. Paul, and he's talking to the Corinthians. And he's talking to the Corinthians about real practical Christian matters. Can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? What happens if a son marries his stepmother, which is creepy? Uh, and then what do you do with men and women Uh, who sleep with temple prostitutes because fertility cults are still very alive in the first century. And part of the worship of fertility cults was to have sexual relations with prostitutes within the temple. And uh, that would encourage uh, the gods to make things fertile um but as when scholars argue over this it could also be just the prevalence of the use of slaves for sex in the ancient world and since Corinth was kind of a seagoing town probably a lot of brothels that men got used to fidelity in marriage did not come easy to the to the uh, Greco-Roman world it just wasn't that important for men very important for women in the sexual double standard but St Paul's taking this on and so He is taking on a Gentile culture, which does not uh, understand uh, Judeo-Christian understandings of sex. But St. Paul is a Pharisee, and he recognizes that going back to the book of Genesis, what starts all the problems? Friends, starts all the problems between Adam and Eve male and female. It's why Jesus spends time healing the relationship between men and women in marriage. And so when he takes on what he calls immorality, he's taking on not financial mismanagement, he's not taking on uh, bad words, he's taking on sexual immorality. The word that he uses is pornea, that's the Greek word, it's the root for our English word pornography and essentially It's about uncleanness in sexual terms. But it's St. Paul's analysis that you have to think about. Because he says there's something different about sex than there is about other bodily appetites or other bodily desires. And so in the reading today, if you go through it, he says, food is made for the stomach and the stomach for food. But in the end, they both die. The body is made for the Lord. You'd think he would say the body is made for sex and the body and sex is made for marriage, but that's not the direction he goes. He says that our bodies, our entire sexual nature belongs to God. uh, And that we have been bought at a price and to sin against your body and the body of another is to sin against the body of Christ. And if you just think about it in Christian terms, why Paul thinks like that? It's because of this long story of Genesis, but also baptism makes you part of the body of Christ. In the Eucharist, you eat uh, the flesh and blood of Christ risen from the dead. And it's later, not just a few chapters later, that St. Paul starts to talk about the Eucharist. And so he says, the body is made for the Lord. And this is how we become fully human. and. In the question of perneia and immorality, St. Paul is the originator of what we in our time would call the theology of the body. That human sexuality is not really like other appetites. It's supposed to draw us into intimate love, and marriage is supposed to draw us into the mystery of the love of God. You know, when Jesus, and this is in the gospel, and you remember the gospel this weekend as Jesus calls his first disciples, and he says, come follow me. Well, the idea being is Jesus did have teachings. He, He taught all the time. But with his disciples, he said, come follow after me because you're supposed to see how he lives and then conform your life to the life of Christ. And so the Oristia. what happens when it's just such a mess? How do you bring it together? And with St. Paul, how do you make sense of out of all this disarray in America, where we treat people like things in racism, we incinerate them uh, with weaponry, we abort our children, we practice artificial means of contraception to separate the natural drive from love from uh, actual conception of children. We have a thriving pornographic culture in America. What does St. Paul and the theology of the body have to offer to us who, like in the story of the Oristia, are just caught up in this mess, and it's hard to think the way out? So, in conclusion, let's take a moment and talk about the theology of the body. You can see the gay. Face of hope beyond, one more song. The body as the subject for theological meditation is not the creation of St. John Paul. Catholics, Christians have been doing this since the very beginning. St. Basil the Great, who in the fourth century, wrote he said this about love and reason he said love of god is not something that can be taught we don't learn from someone else how to rejoice in light or want to live or to love our parents or guardians it is the same perhaps even more so with our love of god it does not come by another's teaching as soon as a living creature that's us comes to be uh, comes to be a power of reason is implanted in us like a seed containing within it the ability and the need to love. When the school of God's law admits this power of reason, it cultivates it diligently, skillfully nurtures it, and with God's help, brings it to perfection. So St. Basil said that the way that we participate in the love of God is that we subject to our reason or capacity to know the truth and to make choices, informed choices in our will. That is how we enter into the love of God. And so what goes into your mouth should be subject to reason. You shouldn't eat things that are harmful for you, at least beyond moderation. Uh, what comes out of our mouth should be subject to our reason. And our, our conjugal life must be subject to our reason. For instance, in the celibate life of a priest, and it chastity is something you have to learn, but chastity is... Justice in love. And you have to learn how to love other people. Uh, otherwise, the temptation always has been in human nature is to just submit to the demands of our emotions. In each of the murders in the Oristia, there is involved just the emotion, the plotting, the vengeance. Clytemnestra had 10 years to figure out how she was gonna take care of her husband. But St. Paul talks about it differently. And so he says, the body is made for the Lord. And so when you sin against your body, you are sinning against the body of Christ. The theology of the body, as St. John Paul II talked about it, was the nuptial meaning of the human body. And the nuptial meaning was was revealed in the marriage of Christ and his church. And He's making the point that St. Paul made in 1 Corinthians that we live, in Christ, that's where immortality is, and it's what it means to rise from the dead and to live in the presence of God. Um, food is different than that, but there's a link between food and this sense of how we love, and that link is in this old understanding of an oblation. In an oblation, a sacrifice is offered uh, to the God, to our God, or to a God. And then the person who makes a sacrifice, eats part of the sacrifice. And so uh, when you do that, you become one with the God. That's That's the heart of the Eucharist. And so for Jesus to say, this is my body, this is my blood, and then do this in memory. Take and eat, do this in memory of me. He's inviting you to an oblation. It's the last supper that makes the crucifixion a sacrifice because it makes it an oblation. And it also is how it is that we share in the divine life of Jesus Christ. That's why in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, it says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. We participate in divine life. So now think about that, what that life looks like. It's more than just rules. Although There are rules, because even St. Paul says the law is needed, like a mentor for a child. But at the end of the day, you have to be transformed. And so you become what justice is, and you know the right thing to do. He said that there's also the sense of the good, what uh, is called consequentialism. The idea is you choose what's the greatest good for the greatest number of people. That's really a product of the philosophy of Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill in the 19th century. But the problem of it is, is well, everybody in the Oresteia is trying to do what they think the good thing is. They're trying to follow the rules. Um, dad shouldn't kill her daughters. So doesn't it mean dad should be killed? Mom shouldn't kill her husband. So doesn't that mean that mom should be killed? There's a problem that Eshelese points out in the Oresteia if all your morality comes down just to the rules? Or what's the greatest good? You know, Plato said, and it's a tough one, but it's truly better to suffer injustice than to do it. And so how is it that Agamemnon, Clytemnestra, Electra, and Orestes avoid doing injustice? Because when they're trying to do justice, at the same time, there's something unjust done. What's St. Paul's answer? St. Paul's answer is, what kind of man does it make you if you choose to kill your child? What kind of woman does it make you if you choose to kill your husband? What kind of son or daughter does it make you if you choose to kill your parent? What's it make you? What's the end purpose of it? Because all justice just at the end, injustice dies with this world. But we survive this world and who we choose to be is what we take with us. You know, I, was, I kind of alluded to it about how the Orestia resolved all of this. Remember, it was the part about the jury trial and the Areopagus in Athens. And so there's a big debate in Greek literature about how the jury solves the problem. But really, in the end, it comes out to the same thing. You see, if it's 11 people on the jury and six vote to convict Orestes of the murder of his mother, Five vote to acquitter, Athena, the chief judge, cast her vote for acquittal, and that leads to a hung jury, effectively freeing arrestees. If there's 12 people on the jury and six vote for acquittal and um, six vote for um, uh, uh, conviction, it is the same thing. And so this confluence of and at least in this pagan Greek sense of what divine justice looks like. It doesn't make things okay. It just says that someday the house of Atreus has just got to quit killing each other because it can't go anywhere. So ask this in your choices and how you think about your own life. And how are you going to act this week? How are you going to think about All of these issues, there are serious issues in our country. How are you going to think about them? How are you going to talk about them and what you're going to do? At the end of the day, what kind of person does it make you? Because right now, America is just overrun by angry people and invective and accusations about who is worse. Is it worse to burn down Portland or to take over Nancy Pelosi's desk but not burn down anything? Crazy conversation. Where are the boundaries? How is it that you can do awful things and hope good comes of it? And according to the uh, first Corinthians, when you do awful things, even if you think you're doing it for some just reason, what kind of person does it make you? Isn't it interesting that the Greeks struggled with this very same issue in one of the great classics of the Western tradition, the Oresteia? If you get a chance, just go to the Rogue Theater, buy a ticket, and watch it at home on your TV. Really worth it. It's really well done. And Rush Ronenbaum composed and played the music. He had a little bit of help, but Russ Ronenbaum's a star on that. So you might take the time to watch all of that. But as you think about the Greeks struggling with this 2,500 years ago, isn't it remarkable we still got all the same problems? All this injustice. Everybody has an idea what the good is. And we all tear at each other just like the chorus does in the Oresteia. And so what we need is something more. St. Paul shows us the way out. He says, we're supposed to follow Jesus. He's calling us as he does in the Gospel. Come follow after me. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Learn to live like the divine in the midst of the darkness of this world. And until next week, this has been Oral Valley Catholic. Take care. It took so long, but our hearts beat as one, just one beating strong.